Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 153 of Historically Thinking. My guest today is Christopher Miller. He's Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where he's co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. He is author of Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, published in 2018, and The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, and also of a very recent essay in the American Interest titled The False Promise of the Surveillance State, which is the subject of our conversation today. Christopher Miller, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. Well, this uh, tickled several um, active parts of my uh, imagination. Uh, one was, as I said to you before we started recording, uh, it reinforced lots of my prejudices, which is you know what some of us look for in essays. Uh, the other is it re- related to some things that we've been talking about. Um, there's some... Hayekian mentions, uh, which we've covered in previous episodes with Russ Roberts and uh, uh, talking about humi- intellectual humility. Also, Mark Salisbury talking about college tuitions. It has something to do also with the surveillance state, which we last discussed uh, in, in a way uh, with Ioana Yordano uh, about her in her book about the Venetian intelligence service in the 16th century. Um, so, you're talking specifically about the Chinese surveillance state, and it began with a your most recent visit to China uh, in January of this year. So could you describe that? What, what's it like to enter into China for someone who's never been there before? Well, I, I think the, the the first thing that that's striking and what struck me this time that I visited was the the facial recognition technology that is at the border. So when you scan your passport, you scan your fingerprints. Uh, and as I, I mentioned in the essay, there's a, an animated computer screen that says fingerprints captured. And then there's a photo taken of your face, which is standard fare at passport checks worldwide. But uh, the, the Chinese passport check, the, there's an animated video that says face captured. And I, I presume <laughs> that my face was uploaded to some database and facial recognition technology applied to it. And, and that, to me, I think brought up some interesting questions about well, how how vast is this this facial recognition surveillance state? And by all accounts, it's quite vast. And then the next question that emerged was, well, what's it doing anyway? How effective is it? Yeah. So you then traveled to Kashgar in the far west of China. Um, can you describe that experience? Can you also describe to people who don't know what's going on there at the, at the moment? Sure. So kind of a 30-second summary is that uh, in in western China, in a province called Xinjiang, um, there's a, a number of ethnic minority groups that live there, the largest of which is called the Uyghurs, um, which are a, a, a t- ethnically Turkic Muslim uh, group uh, that has had a very complicated history with the Chinese state. Uh, most recently, in the past couple of years, uh, the Chinese government uh, argues that there's a, a Uyghur terrorist movement that's trying to uh, uh, gain independence from China. Uh, and as a result, uh, they the Chinese government has adopted a, a pretty repressive a set of measures to clamp down on on what they describe as terrorism and separatism, but in the process they've uh, 
they've uh, locked up something uh, in the hundreds of thousands of people in various levels of detention camps, or re-education camps, or forced labor facilities. Um, so kind of a, a horrifyingly large number of people have been swept up in this campaign against alleged separatism in, in Xinjiang. Um, and one of the key uh, techniques that have been uh, used and deployed by the Chinese government in this campaign is using technology uh, as a tool of repression. So uploading apps on people's smartphones, having cameras, street corner, uh, and using facial recognition technology to identify people and track them uh, throughout society. And you're very, uh, you must have been then attuned after your entrance into China and having your face scanned. You must have been tuned in wherever you went to see cameras. Well, you know, it's funny. You you see lots of cameras, um, but I don't know that you, or at least I didn't notice more cameras uh, than I notice on a regular basis. When you start looking around, you see in the U.S. or in, in many countries, mm-hmm. lots of cameras everywhere. And of course, you have no idea. Uh, today, uh, what's um, you know, what's using facial recognition and what's not? I think in in Xinjiang in particular, what struck me the last time I was there uh, was that unlike the rest of China, where there's sort of a at least my kind of layman's eye and normal level of surveillance cameras in Xinjiang, you see cameras everywhere. Uh, and so I mentioned in the essay, walking into the main mosque in Kashgar, in the center of town, sort of the, the central square. Uh, and you walk through the the main gate, which is sort of this historic uh, gate into the the mosque complex. And then right above you is a, a metal scaffolding with uh, a half dozen cameras hanging off of it. And and so it, it's not designed to be hidden at all. It's sort of an in your face. Here's a reminder of the state's power and ability to track you. So there's a sort of standard received view of this, um, which I suspect is pretty common to both left and right, um, that, well, this is a very um, sort of an assumption uh, that this uh, surveillance tech is uh, part of a uh, way that the regime will be able to uh, stabilize itself and able to uh, press its authoritarian governance. Um, Some people might not like that. Some people might think it's kind of secretly cool. Um, that it's a sort of technocratic wizardry, Um, but you have a sort of different attitude towards that. Uh, You say uh, Beijing has forged a surveillance state without peer, but information alone provides no ironclad guarantee of the Communist Party's future. Explain yourself, please. What can't surveillance do? Well, I guess I'd start by saying what can surveillance do, and it can do many things, and there's some things we can do better today. Uh, than ever before. So tracking an individual's location easier today than at any point, I think, in human history, tracking their financial transactions, um, tracking their communications via email or anything else. I think all all that's easier today than it's ever been. And and there are still ways that people can encrypt their communication, etc. But I think there's no doubt that the ease of surveillance has increased. And this has been a, a key a goal of the Communist Party in China um, to increase its ability to surveil its population and to export this technology abroad is, is part of its its goal of, of sort of creating a more acceptance of, of normalizing this type of surveillance technology uh, across the world. But you know, the big question is, what exactly does this get uh, a government that's receiving all this information about its citizens' locations and its emails? Uh, it certainly gets lots of information on the present, but I I think it's less obvious that it delivers useful analysis about the future. And it, it struck me that if if I were tasked by the party leadership in Beijing to 
analyze what's going to happen next in Chinese politics, it's not obvious that having uh, vastly more information about what the average Chinese citizen is currently doing is going to answer that question. It's, that's a question of projection uh, that isn't necessarily resolved by more data points or more emails that you can read or, or more tracking of, of individuals and vehicles or surveillance online. And, and it, I think there's actually a risk that surveillance states face, which is that the more information they acquire, the, the more they come to think that their job is to acquire information rather than to sift it, to think about it, to analyze it, and ultimately to project into the future. Um, and so mm-hmm. if, if, I, if I were sitting in Beijing, I would actually, I think, be overwhelmed by the number of data points I was getting and find it even harder than usual to understand, well, what is the direction that Chinese politics is actually heading? Now, there's a, excuse me, there's a number of um, historical justifications for that view. Um, and you give several of them, and we could have we could spend some time now to discussing some of the ones you might have left out. Um, you give, ex- for example, the post office of the the French kings, uh, which was not simply a post office, uh, but from Louis the Fourteenth or earlier, was a really uh, highly successful uh, cryptographic office. Um, but that didn't prevent the French Revolution. Well, and in fact, when you look at all of the great revolutions, they were all. Uh, preceded by extraordinary tracking devices and secret services that were well-funded and well-staffed, and and yet they didn't succeed in preventing any of the great revolutions. So uh, the thesis that funding your surveillance state will prevent a revolution seems to me to be historically unfounded. Yeah, the Okran of the Tsars, um, the Stasi in East Germany, and and even the KGB itself could achieve great operational successes, um, but there was no, one of the interesting things about the KGB is, despite the that Robert Hansen's and the Aldrich Ameses, uh, without anyone to really interpret that information or without the right mindset to receive that information, that information was useless. That's right. That's right. And I think what's particularly striking about the the KGB's task, especially when uh, when you look at their internal tasks of understanding uh, Soviet politics and threats to the party's hold on power is that not only did the KGB misunderstand what was going on in Soviet politics during the final years, but so did everyone else. So there was there was no sort of informational advantage that the KGB had over, say, the CIA or academics who were trying to understand Soviet politics. As late as 1989, almost nobody predicted what was going to happen in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And, and there was no obvious data point that anyone was missing. It was a a failure of analysis rather than a failure of data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to always be the way. Uh, and you relate that even to the way that Gosplan, the um, the Communist Party, uh, explained that. The Gosplan was the, the Soviet Union's economic development uh, arm of the, of the party? Yeah, Gosplan was the, the planning agency. So it was, it was tasked uh, in a, at least a theoretical sense with running the entire Soviet economy, setting prices, uh, ordering certain enterprises to produce certain types of goods. And, and the dilemma that they always faced um, was twofold. One is that they didn't really know what was going on in the economy because they had low confidence in the quality of the data that they were receiving. But two, even if they were able to figure out what was going on, they, they couldn't act uh, uh, effectively in, enforce their will on, on the different economic actors in the Soviet Union. But this data problem... Uh, was a was a kind of a constant debate uh, among Soviet economists what to do, how to gather better data, and there was a 
a group of economists in the Soviet Union, one of whom even won a Nobel Prize in economics, who theorized that it was possible for the Soviet Union, in a sort of theoretical sense, to gather all the information needed to run a command economy. If only they had the right data, enough data, they could develop the algorithm necessary, sort of like a envisioning what Jeff Bezos today does with our Amazon accounts, uh, the Soviet Union could do with its planned economy. But I think what's striking about that is is just how far off that that interpretation was. And that economist uh, developed his, his name is Kantorovich. He developed his ideas in the 1950s and 60s. And decades later, despite the increase in computing power, despite the ability to gather and process data, you know, no economy in the world is anywhere close to having data you would need to central plan. And indeed, it's not clear what type of data you could collect would allow you to centrally plan. And so I think the dilemma that central planners face to be honest, is not all that dissimilar to the dilemma that people who would like to plan politics face, which is that you, you just can't collect the types of future-looking uh, data on the future-looking questions that ultimately matter the most. It's less important to know what's happening today. It's more important to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And no evidence about today can give you a clear answer about tomorrow. Hmm. Total objectivity in the historian has been called a noble dream. Uh, I'm not sure that this idea of if only all our inputs are correct, we can plan everything as a noble dream, but certainly a dream. A utopia. Um, and you're suggesting it's utopia. And you're suggesting that it always will always remain at arm's length or greater. That it's always ephemeral. But there's really um, you know, it, it's it's interesting how people really believe that Google or Xi Jinping, they're almost they're about to achieve it. Somehow we're almost about to get all our inputs right, and we'll be able then to to know the future. Like sort of, uh, you know, the minority. I think of the the Tom Cruise film based on the Philip K. Dick story, a Majority Report, yeah. in which you're able to anticipate criminals and crimes before they happen. Exactly, and and when you think through philosophically or epistemologically what that means, uh, it's it's you know difficult to envision how in the real world we'd ever gather the type of information you would need to feed into that type of model. It just doesn't compute. So you, you end up quoting Friedrich Hayek, and I already referred to our, our conversation with Russ Roberts about intellectual humility, but the, the, you quote Hayek saying, knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess. And this is the knowledge problem. Um, how, how do you interpret that? Well, I, I, in this essay, I tried to think of that in, in terms of politics. What would that mean yeah. of a data collection regime that was trying to serve a, a political master? And, and it seems to me that if I were Xi Jinping, one of the issues that I would ask my advisors every day is, what's the political risk that I'm going to face tomorrow? Um, and I'm sure he is asking his political advisors that every day. And then if I were to ask myself, well, if I were one of those advisors, what data would I need to answer that question? I think it immediately comes clear that there's no data set that can individually answer that question because you need to synthesize all sorts of dispersed data. The data itself, as in the Hayek quote, is contradictory. Uh, and there's no pattern of politics that is ever going to emerge and be uh, durable enough and work in, in different situations and persist over time that will let you develop a sort of algorithm of politics. You know, in, in the U.S., we have every four years when there's a presidential election, there's new pollsters who rise to fame for predicting this or that. And it seems to me that the accumulated knowledge of political science in terms of predicting elections is that they have no clue. Uh, <laughs> and that elections that ought to be, you know, they're pretty quantitative things. 
And so if I were advisor to Xi Jinping asking what's going to happen tomorrow in Chinese politics, I, I wouldn't even know where to start collecting data. And I think the proper conclusion is that you, you shouldn't start trying to collect a big data set because there's no big data set out there that seems plausible or conceptually possible uh, that could give you a, a realistic, useful answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So what you suggest instead is um, we go back to our priors. So you say the main accomplishment of China's surveillance state has been to reproduce the indignities of authoritarianism in the internet age. Denunciation culture has gone digital. Um, you know, it, we just, I, was, I mentioned our conversation with Joanna uh, back in early January. Um, the Venetian state had these uh, post boxes where you could drop in denunciations of, of people. Um, throughout Venice, um, some of them were in the sort of shape of a lion's mouth, and you would you'd drop in a denunciation even of your brother. Uh, some people did, your neighbor, whoever. Um, there's nothing really fancy. Uh, there's just a different delivery system uh, for a lot of this uh, surveillance technology in China. The principle is the same. It's just a way of denouncing your brother or your neighbor or whoever you wish to denounce. That, that's absolutely right. And I think what, what struck me about the Chinese case, and a, a colleague of mine pointed this out to me, is that China, on the one hand, has got the world's largest and most sophisticated system of surveillance coupled with facial recognition in the world and in human history, uh, which is a which ought to have been a pretty impressive accomplishment that you would think would have changed Chinese politics. But when you look at how China is dealing with Xinjiang, where it's got uh, it's got a, a policy of trying to deal with what it sees as a separatist threat among the Uyghurs. That the sort of facial recognition that it uses is is not recognizing individuals. It's just uh, categorizing people by ethnicity, uh, and if they're mm -hmm. the wrong ethnicity, I subject them to repression. And this, to me, seems like the, the most extraordinary conclusion that they've got this facial recognition apparatus, and it's having no effect whatsoever in terms of focusing the repressive activities in Xinjiang. You would you would expect at least. Uh, if you've got this new technology, that it would lead to changes in practice. But instead, it's the exact opposite, that they've got new technologies and they're fitting them into existing practices uh, that, that seem to be largely unchanged by whatever technology is thrown at them. Yeah, that, that was something that uh, really struck me in your essay and made me think, because I, I've been thinking a lot lately. It, it merged with something I've been thinking is that, um, well, for some time, that we privilege technology far too much. Um, we believe that technology is so, the a chief driver of so much of our social change. Uh, while in fact, I really do believe that technologies only work with certain cultures. They work with grains of cultures um, and they can't work with cultures if they go against that grain. China already had a, a system of authoritarianism and denunciation and the technology works with that. And it's really hard for that culture to think of different ways of using it. Well, I think that's right. And you, you see in, in the U.S. sort of a similar belief that technology is going to change our politics uh, in, in good ways or in ill. And, and I guess I look historically and you can every generation find Americans saying the new generation of technology is going to transform our politics. And I look back across 200 years of history and see a whole lot of continuity and, and rather less change, whether it's the radio or the television or the, the smartphone. So I, I think that's right, that we often slot technologies into existing social patterns, and they're much less transformative in, in cultural and social usage than we often think. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's not that the car uh, changed American culture. It did, but American culture was ready for the car because we were already used to traveling long distances for various purposes, much farther than, say, Europeans were. Um, that has a lot to do with the way that the country had been laid out from the first settlement. Uh, we could come up with lots of other examples like that. Um, we tend to then say, well, uh, people say, well, the car led to teenage pregnancy. Um, but forget other sort of cultural changes that are less technological, say, such as the creation of high school, which had probably had a lot more to do by 1920, 1930 with teenage pregnancy than the car. When every um, generation of technology creates this, this new kind of prediction of social change, which is only ever partially, partially fulfilled. So as you say, technology complements state capacity, but it cannot substitute for it, which is sort of a nice underline uh, for what we've just been saying. Um, where does this all go? Uh, does this does this just is this, is your uh, uh, tale simply a, a cautionary um, warning not not to, to predict too much for the technology in China, or do you have uh, some other sort of um, sort of argument behind your argument? I think it is a, a cautionary tale about our ability to predict Chinese politics and also our confidence in the Chinese government's ability to predict the future of Chinese politics, because it seems to me that almost every article you read about China's surveillance state comes coupled with the prediction that as a result of this surveillance state, Xi Jinping will rule forever. Uh, yeah. Maybe he will, but maybe he won't. And I'm not sure that the facial recognition cameras will be the determinative factor. Um, but you know, more generally, you look at uh, many different countries for many different reasons are, are trying to adopt new surveillance technologies in, in the context of, of COVID. Right now in the U.S., there's more discussion about whether we should be using technology to surveil people on public health grounds. Uh, but it, it seems to me that we should uh, always see technology as sort of a, as a, as something that's going to help resolve a problem if there's an in, uh, institutional structure in place that can correctly and adequately use that technology rather than a panacea on its own. Um, because I think if we look at technology just as a panacea, we're going to be disappointed because the problem won't be resolved and it might come with nasty side effects in the process. Yeah, there's a, I don't know if you saw it, but just today there was a something published um, from uh, in Reuters about warning that um, we're sleepwalking into surveillance with coronavirus controls. Um and that certainly seems to be one of the might be one of the after effects of this uh, the pandemic that we're much more uh, prone to accept surveillance into into our lives. Uh, yet that doesn't mean we'll be necessarily um, more informed. I think that's that's a great point. And in in, in in the essay, I, I noted the contrast between South Korea and China. Um, I think few people would describe South Korea as a particularly adept surveillance state um, compared to China, which is known for its surveillance. But the South Koreans were far more effective in actually tracking the spread of coronavirus through the society in contrast with China, which uh, tried to cover it up uh, until it was, mm -hmm. was too late. So the irony there is that there's actually no correlation at all between your ability to track and your ability to respond effectively, at least when you compare China to yeah. countries like South Korea or, or also Taiwan. So once again, the in that in China's case, the technology was constrained by the um, the cultural norms, uh, the guardrails, uh, which is don't report bad news to people who have power over you. Um, That's right. And, and the great irony is that China had a similar dilemma with with SARS in two thousand two, two thousand three. That was before 
any facial recognition technology today, it's after, but actually the policy response is totally unchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a professor, uh, assistant professor of international history. Uh, what is that? What is international <laughs> history? I mean, I, I, we've, we had a continuing series on this podcast of sort of histories of history and, and sub-disciplines of history, but international history is a new one on me, I have to admit. Well, I'm a, I'm a, a Russianist by training. Um, but I, I teach both Russian politics and history, but also history of the international system writ large or histories of international politics. So I suppose if international history is a discipline and I'm not sure that it is a coherent one, but it would it would focus on understanding changes in the international system writ large rather than a single country. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about your essay, the short little this elegant essay that you wrote for the American interest is um, the way that you use historical evidence uh, to support your argument. Um, I've noticed, and this is particularly true right now uh, with the pandemic, there's lots of stuff now about the 1918 flu, which is sort of interesting in and of itself because we're experiencing a pandemic. Um, but oftentimes, um, it's difficult for people to ascend, um, to take a, that sort of historical information to something other than simply uh, trivia. Or, uh, you know, there's a pandemic happening in 2020. Here's what happened 100 years ago. Isn't that interesting? Or we have one in which um, certain events from the past are sort of cherry-picked to reinforce what was certainly a prior view. Um, have you thought about how to did you, this make you think, or have you thought about before how to write a historically based argument about issues in his contemporary life? Yeah, I think you're right that the the danger of turning to historical examples is is always cherry picking. It's almost always possible to find a historical case study that fits whatever argument one is looking to make. Um, and I think the the key thing is to have recourse to multiple historical examples that let you sort of test your thesis against different bodies of evidence. The classic example is in U.S. foreign policy, people returning to the example of Munich in 1938. And of course, some mm-hmm. things are like Munich in 1938, but many things are, are rather different. And if you've only got one example in your mind, you're going to reach the wrong comparison just as many times as you reach the right comparison. So I, I suppose that's a plug of sorts for historical education to make sure that when people are looking for case studies, they can pull out more than just one or two and and check their priors against different bodies of evidence. Well, my guest today has been Chris Miller. He's author of a recent essay, well, very recent essay in the American interest, The False Promise of the Surveillance State. He's assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Chris Miller, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.